You know, one of the things that our family has always enjoyed doing um, uh, has been jigsaw puzzles. In fact, there's one on our dining room table right now. Catherine's sister and her niece uh, flew in on Friday to visit her, haven't been here in quite some time. And, uh, well, uh, Catherine's sister has never been here. She hasn't seen them in quite some time. And they're working on a, a puzzle even uh, over this weekend. Uh, when we were in Argentina, uh, we didn't find any jigsaw puzzles there. And so my dad would send us puzzles uh, in, in the mail. Back in the old days when snail mail was the only way to do things. And it would take weeks and sometimes months. And uh, to save space, he would take them out of the box and put them into something else, maybe a uh, paper sack or, or you know, Ziploc bags didn't exist back in those days. And so he would stick them in something. One, one of our family memories is that uh, one year a uh, package arrived, it was wrapped, and it sounded like it had jigsaw puzzle pieces in it. And so I played with the kids and I just shook that thing for all of its worth, right? Every time I had a chance, I would walk by the tree, pick that thing up and shake it and shake it and shake it. And they would say, no, dad, no, please. I said, no, it's just puzzle pieces. I mean, who cares, right? Shook it, shake it. So on Christmas day, we opened it. Well, it wasn't puzzle pieces. It was Dorito dust. Uh, I had managed, <laughs> uh, he, he, he had decided to send a package of Doritos, and so, but he took them out of the bag, put them into a little thing, and it's like, Dad, come on. <laughs> so anyway, we, we enjoyed, uh, we all stuck our fingers and licked the dust. But uh, uh, one year he forgot to send us the cover, the picture uh, from the box. And so we just got this bag of, uh, of puzzle pieces. And so we did our best, and I think we finally got together. It was a challenge, but it was, uh, it was doable. Uh, um, the, the even more challenging time was when um, we were struggling to get a piece, uh, a puzzle together, and, and we realized that he had forgotten or lost some of the pieces, and uh, it wasn't there. So it was just an ongoing kind of challenge. Well, you know, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes in our lives we can realize that something is missing in our relationship with God, in, in what is happening, uh, our knowledge of Him. And in today's text, which comes from Acts chapter 19, you can go ahead and pull it up in your, on your Bible, your app, whatever. Uh, we're going to have it on the screen in just a second. In today's text, Paul is going to find 12 men in Ephesus who are missing something pretty significant in their life. And the solution is for them to be rebaptized. Okay? Now, rebaptism only occurs one time in the entire New Testament, and that is in this text here in Acts chapter 19. But it does show up and has shown up quite frequently in church life over the years. Uh, there has been a considerable amount of controversy about rebaptism. Some churches refuse to rebaptize an individual. There's only one baptism, and once you've been baptized, then that's all you need. Other churches won't let you become a member of their church unless you're rebaptized, regardless of what your previous experience has been. And then some people are moved to rebaptism or to be baptized again when they're in a particular setting, like uh, people visiting Israel and they're at the Jordan River and they're thinking of this is the place where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and they want to reenact that experience in their own life. So there's any number of reasons why people might want to be rebaptized, but but most often it's because there's this sense that. There's just something missing. 
that something wasn't just right, that all the pieces didn't fit together in their conversion experience, and maybe it needs to be done again. Now, we follow in our reading the chapter divisions and the verse divisions that have been marked out for us, but, but as many of you know, those are not original to the biblical text. Um, uh, those were added some years after, and so we can sometimes miss the connection between one story and the other because there's a chapter division, and we're going to start with chapter 19, but actually, and even in this case, what's happening in chapter 18 is significantly important. At the end of Acts chapter 18, a man named Apollos shows up in the story, and he arrives in Ephesus from Egypt. And once he's in Ephesus, uh, uh, he joins himself to the believers, and the scriptures tell us that he was an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures very well, but he had just a couple gaps in his religious experience and in his understanding. And one of those gaps was the only baptism he knew was from John the Baptist. So in Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila help him fill in those gaps and then send him to Corinth to work with the church there. Uh, and, uh, and he does so and things go pretty well. Now we're going to pick up the following text or the story that picks up in uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions. He had gone off to Jerusalem and back, and then he was making his way through uh, the coast, the interior part, and uh, he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. They replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but Jesus himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul laid his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, so it's a pretty short story, and we're just going to kind of highlight some of the, uh, the, 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 the interesting points, at least from our context. So, so we've got two stories back to back, the end of chapter 18, the first part of chapter 19, and they both kind of tell the same story. Some individuals who are connected to this new movement, but who had gaps in their understanding and in their learning. Apollos and uh, uh, these disciples in Ephesus. And it seems that there was maybe some connection. These were very likely individuals that Apollos had taught at some point. Now, it it shouldn't surprise us that there were disciples of John the Baptist throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, John kept on preaching until he was killed, uh, but he kept on announcing the word, and then people would hear they believed what he was preaching, And then they went off and announced what this prophet of God was was teaching and preaching. And his basic message was, I'm not the Christ, but there's one coming. He's on his way. And when he gets here, he's going to bring in and usher in an entire new way of interacting with God. He encouraged people to be baptized for the remission of their sins, but at the same time, pushing and pointing people towards the preparation of the Messiah. 
When Paul meets these disciples, we don't really know why, but he sensed something was lacking in their faith. And so he asked them, do you have the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? You know, we've read this text, I'm sure, for, for a, a number of times and a number of years. And so we're used to the question. But how would you respond if you're out in the foyer after church and you're just saying hi to the folks and you're maintaining social distance and you're just greeting and fist bumping? And someone says, oh, by the way, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit? It's kind of an odd question. It's a very personal question. Why is, is my spirit not showing, you know, uh, uh well, evidently there was something about their life or their actions or their conversation that led him to ask. There was something that was lacking. And so he asks about their conversion experience. Well, what was your baptism? And the answer was baptism of John. And so that's when Paul takes advantage to then teach them about Jesus's baptism or the baptism in the name of Jesus. Now, there are similarities in Jesus's baptism. We also repent. We also receive forgiveness of sins. The primary difference is the authority, but then the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's something that when we are baptized in Jesus's name and we receive the Holy Spirit, it puts us into this army of God that now we are participating in the mission of God. Once we have God's spirit, we are no longer individuals who only focus on trying to live a good life. Now we're focused on trying to live God's life. And we're focused on trying to fill, fulfill everything that he's trying to accomplish in this world. As, as we read through the whole book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit was the primary pusher, if you will, the primary force that was pushing the disciples throughout the Roman Empire to preach and to teach and to let people know what God was doing. And now that we have the spirit, that's part of our mission. That's what anyone who has the spirit of God would do is to try and fulfill God's mission through our very lives. But you think, how could these people not know about the Holy Spirit? When, you know, we look at the answer, it says, well, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Uh, that's probably a little unfortunate in the terms of the translation, because it's if they knew John's baptism, they knew that there was a Messiah coming and they knew that Jesus would baptize with power. So they knew a spirit was coming. Well, what this probably or the better way to probably translate is that they didn't realize that the Spirit had been poured out. They didn't realize what had happened on the day of Pentecost. They had heard the message about John, but they didn't know that that moment had taken place when God's Spirit was poured out on his people. They were ignorant that Pentecost had come. So some authors refer, this to, refer to this experience in this situation in Acts chapter 19 as the Ephesian Pentecost. Now, there have been three other Pentecosts uh, recorded in the book of Acts. You've got the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came and uh, filled all of those, uh, uh, the disciples there, and uh, we, we have this huge, tremendous outpouring of the Spirit on uh, Acts chapter 2. Uh, but then when... Peter and John are preaching to the Samaritans, they also receive the Holy Spirit and they're able to speak in tongues. 
and, um, and, and have that ministry. And, and then we see a repetition of that when Cornelius is baptized. Uh, uh, prior to his baptism, they also receive an outpouring of the Spirit. So we have these three different moments when God's Spirit was poured out on different groups of people. And we kind of understand when you think about the mission of the church, Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, it seems like each of those Pentecost experiences goes along with that movement of the gospel. So why Ephesus? Why a fourth? That wasn't necessarily even predicted or commanded. Well, Ephesus is a very special city in the, in, 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 in the Bible and in our understanding of scriptures. Um, Ephesus where, is where Paul is going to stay longer than any other place. He's going to stay there three years preaching and teaching. Uh, he stayed a year and a half in Corinth, but he doubles that when he gets to Ephesus. Ephesus would later be the home for Timothy and his ministry and where Timothy was when Paul writes the letters to Timothy. It's also where the Apostle John was situated and made his home. But in addition to the home of Timothy and the Apostle John, Ephesus was home for the Greek goddess uh, Artemis, or in Roman terms, she was known as Diana, the goddess of fertility. This temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was not only a commercial and political center, but it was a center of idolatry, much like other places like Athens and other cities. But Paul didn't have significant ministry there. So it seemed that God wanted to make sure that the beginning of this ministry, Ephesus, started out with an outpouring of God's strength and his power and his spirit so that everyone would be on board for this new mission. And so they spoke in tongues. Now, speaking in tongues is not a normative experience for most Christians. In fact, it's not very normative for most people in the Bible. After this time in Acts chapter 19, speaking in tongues doesn't show up again in the book of Acts. And in the rest of the Bible, it only shows up one time, and that's in the context of 1 Corinthians. But outside of that, you never find anybody speaking in tongues in any church or in any situation in any of the other epistles in the New Testament. So it wasn't really something that everybody in the Bible or everybody in the early church was doing. What is normative is helping people in their conversion experience and making sure their relationship with God was what it was supposed to be and what it needed to be. These disciples knew Jesus, but only through John's teaching. You could say that they only knew Jesus through John's faith. And what Paul teaches them is that they needed to know Jesus for themselves and make the decision to follow him. You know, many people, especially among the Latin world, uh, but various places in the country and in the world, uh, were baptized when they were babies or small children. And in a way, you could say that they were baptized through the faith of someone else, their parents, someone who loved them. But, but then there comes a time when they realize that a decision needs to be made by themselves, not necessarily someone who loved and cared for them. And so that person makes the decision 
to be baptized, and we encourage people to make what we refer to as believer baptism or adult baptism. When we come to the book of Acts, we often go to the book of Acts looking for a pattern of practices in the early church, normative practices. This is what every church did. This is what every person did to be saved. This is what every person experienced. Rather than a clear pattern of this is what happened in every city and this is what happened with every single person, what we actually find is a wide variety of practices and a big difference of practices from place to place. Some people were baptized and then they received the Holy Spirit. Some people received the Holy Spirit and then they were baptized. Some people worshipped in the Jewish temple and the synagogues and then went to the Christian church on Sunday. Other people only met in the Christian church. Some people worshipped God in the temple. Some people worshipped in their homes and yet others in rented or borrowed lecture halls like Acts chapter 19 is going to describe a little bit later on in the chapter. Some people were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or, as we have here, some people were baptized in the name of Jesus. Some people spoke in tongues after their conversion. Most people didn't. So for all the variety of experiences and practices, there were some things that were constant and normative for all the believers And that is that when you come to faith in Jesus, everyone is baptized in one way or another into the name or the authority of Jesus, into his death, burial, and resurrection. And then not only are we baptized into that death, burial, and resurrection, but then even as we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that this is the body and this is the blood that he gave and that he shed for our benefit. And so... All of us here at Sunset have this shared common experience of being baptized. So if you need to be baptized today, either for the first time as an adult believer or because you're convinced that there's something lacking or missing from your conversion experience, we're here to help you in that process. We would be honored and it would be our pleasure to help you with that. Most of us, though, here, and perhaps those listening and watching at home, have experienced this conversion experience. And so I would repeat Paul's question to all of us, myself included. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Now, I'm not referring to whether you can speak in tongues or do miracles. I'm thinking more in terms of the mission of God. Are you living that mission that we see clearly laid out in Scripture of being God's representative. Wherever you are, you are that woman or that man that stands up and says, my relationship with God, my citizenship in heaven is more important than any political affiliation, any ethnic or any national uh, 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 or international kinds of connections I have. My relationship with God is that I am his spokesperson And I represent who he is. And then I would be referring to whether you live out the fruit of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. If the Holy Spirit is not present in your life, 
I don't necessarily think that you, sh it, maybe you need to, but I don't know that you need to be rebaptized today. But perhaps you need to think about how you can mature and ripen the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I, I taught a cl class uh, for our Spanish uh, through the pandemic uh, on the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that really struck me was this phrase and this prayer that God would ripen the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life. The fruit might be there, but it's just not ripe. For the first time, uh, I am growing uh, bananas in our, I'm not going bananas, I said growing, make sure that we get that R in there, you know, some people hear what they want to hear. Uh, I'm growing a banana tree that my physical therapist gave me, and it just sprouted the flower. So those of you who know anything about bananas know that that's the next step, and out of that flower, when it kind of comes down, all the little bananas are going to appear. Well, once they appear, that doesn't mean they're ready to eat, they have to ripen. There's a difference between having them and maturing them. And so one of the prayers that has become a part of my life is this prayer that John Stott, well-known preacher and minister and author, uh, uh, used to make a part of his morning ritual. And maybe it's one that you might want to think about and consider as well. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you need to be baptized today, we want to help. If you need to begin allowing the fruit of the Spirit to ripen in your life, we also want to help. Please let us know. We're here to do that. God bless you, and God bless this congregation. Thank you.